Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider from the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Kevin, lovely weekend with you in Boston. Wasn't that great? It was. It was so, ro- it was so romantic. Oh, wait a minute. I'm a, so. I'm, that's not what we were talking about, was it? Oh, no. Well, we were no. before the show started, but there's no need to get into it now. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Did you have a nice meal there? That's yes. a, and that's Evan Grant. In separate uh, restaurants, but now. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Evan Grant, where are you joining us from? Um, beautiful surprise, Arizona. That's right. Have you realized spring training has not started? You, you have an off-season home there. Is that? It. Uh, it's never too early to begin planning for 2022. <laughs> I am. I'm out here for some instructional league and fall league stories to gather a few of those. Um, and to survey to see what dust has moved where at the Rangers complex. <laughs> yeah, just another Evan Grant boondoggle. Uh, nobody gets around the world more than Evan does talking about the Rangers. Um, so that's good. All right, so listen, we're gonna have we're gonna talk about a lot of things today. We're gonna talk about the the Mavericks getting ready to get started. We're gonna talk about uh, college football coaches and what's going on in some of these places. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about the playoffs, but first, we're gonna talk about the Dallas Cowboys that are five and one, uh, and they're on a bye week this week, which they really need because Dak Prescott has been diagnosed with a calf strain. So, David, uh, in your medical history, uh, what does that mean uh, for a calf strain? Well, um, there is, as Mike McCarthy was talking about the other day, especially this close to the injury, you have variances on a time frame, so they're not putting one on now. Although the club stance is that they are optimistic that he will be able to play in their next game, which is Halloween night against uh, Minnesota. Um, I would say let's let this play out a little bit. Uh, you could, it's fine to be optimistic, uh, but you're not really going to have a good feel for whether or not he can play until you see what he can do next week when they return to practice. Uh, you know, right now he's still in a boot. He'll probably be in, be in a boot for next, the next several days. The players aren't practicing this week uh, because of the bye week, so that does help him recover. But, um, you know, again – this is positional too. Now, you know, Michael Gallup came out of the the opener with a calf strain and he hadn't played since. Uh, he's expected to return after the bye in uh, Minnesota. So that that means he will have been knocked out for six weeks. Um, you know, Kareem Hunt, the running back in Cleveland, suffered a calf strain uh, in Sunday's loss. And they're saying already he's going to be out for at least three to four weeks. So three to four weeks is not unreasonable. But um, at his position, you know, it's interesting, uh, Troy Aikman, uh, who many of you know, played Evan, I, I think you know this, he played quarterback for the Cowboys in the nineties. Um, he was talking on our sister, uh, media, uh, outlet, uh, the ticket, uh, earlier this week about how he played with a calf strain and he was able to play the next week. And he said, it's a little easier for a quarterback to do, Uh, more so than a running back or a receiver, because if it's still bothering you to some extent, uh, you just don't run that game. Now, of course, Troy never ran, so that wasn't an issue for him. But he just said, you know, you can manage it a little bit more as a quarterback if you know there are some things you can't do. You stay in the pocket. um, You you can tweak the offense a little bit. You just know you're not going to be as mobile. So he felt it was uh, reasonable to expect that 
uh, Dak Prescott will be able to play against Minnesota. And I will say the optimism's fine. There is a chance he plays against Minnesota, but you don't know yet for sure. That That's just right on the cusp of whether or not he'll be able to return. And then you get into uh, step back and analyze it. If you have any question whatsoever that this could be a lingering issue, you're sitting at five and one. You already have a three-game gap on every other team in the division. Um, you're you're tied for the best record, a uh, second best record in all of football. Do you really need him to play in that game? And so th- I think there are a lot of decisions and moving parts that go into place before we can say he's going to play against the Vikings. Yeah, I I have a little bit of a problem here. Before I want to introduce a little little factoid here before we get your comment, uh, real quickly. Uh, in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, had a re, uh, a story in 2017 that the uh, they did a study of NFL players from 2003 to 2015, and the average time away from the football field was two weeks. Uh, so. Uh, that says to me that uh, I, I understand what Troy's saying, and I certainly respect Troy's opinion on all of that uh, very well. But as you said, Troy Aikman and Dak Prescott are two completely different kinds of quarterbacks. Uh, Troy was a, a quintessential pocket passer, uh, stayed in that pocket, you know, for days at a time, uh, and and Dak is not. We watched that that game in uh, uh, Foxborough the other day. How many times did Dak stay in the pocket? I, I would say roughly half of the time the rest of the time he's rolling out uh he and he's and he's probably more successful when he is rolling out i think to ask him to stay back there in the pocket uh all of the time and uh and not to try to execute the offense and not to try to get out of harm's way uh is uh, asking for disaster so evan what are your thoughts on that well first of all i'd just like to mention that uh, david as you as you brought up I, i am very familiar with troy um we uh, we had dinner together Friday night at uh, at National Anthem in Dallas. Uh, if you count that, we were sitting in one booth and Troy was sitting. I was going to say, what was the totality the of those involved? Yes, yes. Um, so uh, we're we're very very close, clearly. Um, and but I I agree with you guys. You know, in in, in baseball, it's a push off injury, and that first step, you know, it may not feel it may not feel bad, but it'll catch pretty quickly if you're if you're trying to run on that thing um and it is notorious in baseball as one of those tricky injuries that guys will tell you they feel better after about a week but it really does require about two weeks rest um i I would think at a minimum the cowboys you know they're not like you said they're not practicing this week i think you're talking about you know at a minimum giving him 10 days rest and then does he practice you know in, in in a limited fashion on on Thursday, Friday, before they before they go to Minnesota, um, and is that a smart move right now? I, I think there's a lot involved with where this season is. Um, the Cowboys are pretty clearly either the best or the second best team in the NFC at this point in time, um, and the good news is they're going to have their opportunity to prove that when they when they face Arizona down the line. and And so I, I think that the the most important thing is without taking anything for granted, the most important thing is making sure that you're going to have your quarterback healthy for the remaining 90% of the season, not the next 10%. Yeah. If I may, if I may pull a a Kevin here for a second, you know, I wrote in the Dallas morning news today, if you happen to read it, that uh, I posed the hypothetical that, (laughs) 
that a coach would never embrace or discuss. But were the Cowboys better off winning that game with Dak Prescott being injured on the final play, which was a 35-yard touchdown pass to C.D. Lamb? Or would you prefer they either tie or lose that game, but know you had him going forward? And I posited that it was better to get that win for what it meant, for what this team was building, for where it put them in the standings at this moment, for the fact that now you look at his career, that was the 17th time Dak Prescott had uh, led his team to a come-from-behind victory in the fourth quarter or overtime. His stats now in overtime, 18 of 18 for like 214 yards and three touchdowns, I believe. He has never thrown an incompletion in an overtime game for the Cowboys. That sort of performance and momentum means a lot more to what this team can do as the season goes along than them losing that game or tying that game in overtime and and Dak Prescott's dominance in late-game situations doesn't rise uh, to to the level that you saw again in that game. So I I think uh, you take that win, even if it means he's in question for a week or even two, coming out of that based on what it what it gave them and where it put them. And plus the knowledge that, look, we're not just getting Dak Prescott back healthy, even if he's out for a week or two. We have all these guys coming back on defense. We have Lyle Collins and Michael Gallup coming back uh, right after the bye uh, for, the, for the Minnesota game. Hey, we're five and one and we're getting people back. So if we lose Dak for a game or two, hey, we're still, we still built something here and we know where this is going. All right, I'm going to say this right now, that the Cowboys should plan on Dak not playing against Minnesota, give Cooper Rush all the first-team reps uh, next week, uh, get him ready to play that game, and then and then if, if Dak just shows that, well, look, look at me, I'm, I'm in great shape, I feel great, you know, of course he's going to try to talk his way into the game. We know oh, he'll sure. do that. So you, you can't really pay much attention to that. Uh, but that, that should just be the plan going forward that they do that. But I want to talk about the, the point you were just bringing up about winning that game. They, they never would have got to overtime had the Cowboys not done some curious things during that game, which had, they have been doing all year long. And I'm not talking just about the uh, 12 penalties for 115 yards, which is just ridiculous uh, in that game. And, and I, don't, I know that some of the players are complaining about the refs and all that. All I know is that uh, most of the penalties that, that were called when they show replays, uh, yeah, that's a penalty. Uh, so, I, I, you know, that was an issue. The bigger issue for me continues to be the things that the decisions that Mike McCarthy makes. I don't remember these kind of things coming up when he was in Green Bay. I guess this was all part of his little, uh, you know, revival that he had uh, when he spent that year out of the game uh, in deciding that, yeah, you know, it's fourth and one at our 34 on the very first drive of the game. Let's go for it, guys. Uh, and his explanation after the game was, I have supreme confidence in this offense. Well, I got to tell you, Mike, uh, I don't know what to say after that, but I think you had about three or four more uh, fourth and ones, and you didn't get those either. Uh, So at at some point, you have to realize what the situation is. And the situation there in New England is that the Cowboys are the heavy favorites in that game. And and this is a – and it is a tough place to play, and you are playing against Bill Belichick, whose defense is still really good. Uh, They're not very good on offense anymore. But their defense is still really good. And, and and to me, you just punt the ball at that point, play it safe, and 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 and, uh, and just and take your, your chances the next time out. Instead, 
You give them a short field, and they just gobbled it right up. Three plays, and they're in the end zone. And it's seven to nothing. And now the Cowboys are playing catch up essentially for the rest of the game. Yeah. I, at that stage, to me, that was just sending, you can say it's, it's showing confidence in your team, which yes, it is, but you also have to project out, well, what does it show the other team, especially if you don't get it? And it's showing the other team that, look, we can take a chance that really very few teams would take here because we don't think you can beat us even though we're at your place because you don't have the offense to hang with us. So even if you score here, we're just going to come back and you can't stop us. But but what does that sort of team you can't do? You can't allow them to hang in the game because you're clearly better than them. And, and this game showed that. And so why get, you know, that decision gave them, in essence, they only had to go five yards to get a field goal, but they went to 35 yards and got a touchdown. So you gave points right there. Um, what else can't you do when you're a better team? You can't have 12 penalties for 115 yards to keep the other team in the game. You can't go two for 13 on third down conversions, which Dallas did. You can't turn the ball over in the end zone twice to take points off the board, which Dak Prescott did as good of a game as he had. So, yeah, I agree with you completely that the other thing here and, you know, Dan Quinn talked about this going into the New England game. Um, They have to get better at limiting uh, the big plays that they're giving up. And you saw it again in this game. I think there were six plays, Kevin, you were talking about earlier, more than 20 yards. That doesn't count. Uh, the 15-yard penalty on Trayvon Diggs on another possession, the 15-yard penalty for Micah Parsons on another possession. Um, as, as, as much as this defense is doing, they are giving up too many big plays. And that sequence in the fourth quarter where Trayvon Diggs gets a pick six, and, and how much longer is this going to go on? I mean, six games right. with what he's doing. Uh, yeah. but, but the very next play, he bites on a double move and gives up a 75-yard touchdown pass. Uh, that is where this defense can still improve over these final 11 games of the regular season. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that we're going to uh, move on from the Cowboys now. We're going to talk about uh, uh, the Mavericks. Uh, they've got a season coming up here pretty soon here. David, the, you know, uh, the Mark Cuban, uh, well, they, they parted ways with Rick Carlisle. I don't want to say that uh, he fired him because he, he didn't fire him. He fired his general manager, Donnie Nelson. He didn't fire Rick Carlisle. That was kind of a surprise development. Um, but I will say this. It was time for either Rick Carlisle or or – uh, Chris Porzingis to move on one or the other. Cause I clearly that wasn't working out, uh, with, the with the two of them and the way that Rick, uh, played him in the, uh, playoffs against the Clippers. So they bring in Jason Kidd. Uh, I think that's for a twofold purpose. One, uh, to mentor Luka Doncic a little bit, somebody that Luka uh, clearly would admire or should admire, uh, and one of the greatest point guards in the history of the NBA. And, and secondly, to be a guy who'd be a great recruiter, maybe bring some, uh, you know, uh, uh, attract some star players. Uh, we don't know if that's actually going to happen or not, but it's certainly uh, worth a shot anyway. Uh, so what we're what we're seeing so far in the in the in this short preseason uh, was that the the Mavericks played much better defense uh, uh, and certainly a rejuvenated Kristaps Porzingis, which is to me. Everything that has to happen this season, uh, any hopes that the Mavericks have of getting past the first round have to be based on the fact 
that KP is going to play up to his contract. Yeah, this um, this Mavericks roster is currently constructed, and there are really only four players who are different in, in this nucleus than what you had on last year's roster, and, and they will be bit players. They will be down-the-line uh, rotational players for you. So you're, you're basically looking at rolling back the same roster you had last year uh, as far as who's going to do the heavy lifting. But the way it's currently constructed, you would never hit the ceiling of what this group could do if Porzingis doesn't return to his all-star form or is used in a way that allows him to be, uh, to perform at that level. And there are multiple reasons, I think, why that didn't happen last year. The first year back, you know, from from the injury, fighting your way through it, uh, the inconsistency of, of practice uh, on what he was able to take part in because he didn't practice. Uh, Rick Carlisle didn't feel he should do certain things in games. And then you just had uh, an issue of diminishing returns as the season went along. And and you need to be building up your best players as the season goes along, not not getting diminishing returns and, and giving them a more limited role. And by the time you got to the uh, postseason, you you just imploded again uh, in, in the first round. Um, you know some of their other first round exits since the title. I don't think you can particularly blame them because I don't think those teams were that good. But this team was building to have a ceiling to go farther, and the fact it was it kept bumping its head at the same point uh, that there needed to be a change. Uh, you know, we talked about it last year with with uh, Rick Carlisle, but even more so this year. I mean, you, you need to see whether or not Porzingis and Luka Doncic and the others on this team are a good fit uh, for you going forward, and whether and whether you feel you can build around them in a way where you're going to compete in a very competitive Western conference. And, um, and, and Porzingis knows that too. Uh, Jason Kidd knows it, uh, both of how they viewed what this season is going to be, not just from a team standpoint, but individually it is going to be how these guys respond to this new situation for, for Jason Kidd and Kristaps uh, Porzingis. Um, it's off to a good start. Uh, but, but, there were reasons that Porzingis didn't do more last year, and we're going to see uh, how uh, Jason Kidd manages that over the course of a regular season, and how Luka Doncic manages as well. Yeah, it's uh, there's got a lot of people who have to have a buy-in on this, and yes. uh, and, and like we talked about, it was a uh, this is a very small sample size, but what we've seen so far, they played uh, tremendous defense actually at, at times, and Porzingis has played. Uh, exceptionally well on both ends of the floor. He looks really rejuvenated at this point. And, and it's, yes, it's four, three or four games. That doesn't mean anything, uh, but it's an indicator of what they are trying to do. And what the players have talked about is that the approach seems simpler on offense and defense. They, they are communicating better. Uh, these are all the aspects of what you have to have, especially on defense to be playing well. Uh, it's, it was more, uh, than just trying to find more shooters to surround uh, Luca with the the Mavericks, uh, I believe, in their defensive ratings last year were were ninth uh, overall in the West. Uh, that's not good enough. Uh, the, there were four teams above them uh, that were better in their uh, offensively scoring and better defensively, and that's why it's going to be so difficult for them in the West unless they improve their defense. Um, you know, I know that. That last year, especially in the playoffs, or for most of the season, actually, you know, uh, Przingis 
looked like he wasn't playing in defense at all uh, and was and was just an, an easy mark. Uh, in, the, in this preseason, he's been blocking shots. He's been moving. He's been doing lots of things. He's talked about how much healthier he feels. Uh, he's talked about how, how much he's enjoying this uh, offense and what they're trying to do. It does look like they are trying to run the offense through him occasionally uh, in the pick and roll and other things. And this is really going to be important because as we, you know, you see this all the time in the NBA. Uh, if you can get a guy going offensively, he's going to be engaged more defensively. Uh, he's not going to, if he's an offense first player, he's not going to be a, a, a great defensive player probably, and, and probably not even a good one, but you just got to get him to do something. You got to get him to make some kind of effort. And I think that's what is really incumbent upon Jason Kidd is to find a way to get Luca to buy into the fact that you have got to get this guy involved in, in during the games. And you, and you know, they, and one of the things they want to do is get the ball out of Luca's hands a little more. And I know that sounds a little counterproductive or counterintuitive, uh, but you know, he's the ball simply going through him too much. He's getting as big a guy as he is sooner or later. This is all going to have a wear and tear effect on him. It, it, it did it during the playoffs last year. He's handling the ball too much. He's, and then he's gassed at the end of the games. Uh, if, if, you know, what they feel like is if they can do things to get more people involved in the offense and maybe have another, uh, ball handler on the floor with him at the same time uh, occasionally that that would certainly help their prospects as well yeah if you run the offense through Porzingis a little bit and give him more opportunities than what he had last year on a consistent basis he's going to be a more active and better defensive player for you you just can't reduce him to a defensive player who sometimes gets the ball uh he's he's too good for that and you know what it we may find out as the season goes along these two can't coexist and it is better uh there would be better fits uh going forward uh which means Porzingis wouldn't be here because you're not going to get rid of Luka Doncic but yeah you're right and and Luka has to be willing to give up the offense and let it run through other players at certain stages of the game Never in the, when the game is on the line, and really not for most of the fourth quarter. But you have to be able to pick your spots over the course of the game, even when he's on the floor, uh, where you run the offense through other players. And, and I think you will see a, a more concerted effort to do that uh, this season. Now that they've kept this nucleus together, another key, real quick. I know we need to. We have a lot to talk about with college coaches, um, but the other thing in keeping this together is you look at the teams above them in the Western Conference. Their nucleus has been together for a while. Uh, if Dallas made a major change to the nucleus this year, you couldn't expect them to to go up in that group. So we're going to find out now if this is the right nucleus in my mind. Yeah, there was no – they really had no choice. You, you weren't going to be able to unload that contract anyway. Uh, you need to find that out, and you're right. This is the year they need to find out if KP and Luca can make it work. All right, let's look at uh, uh, our uh, college coaching situation now. This can of worms was opened uh, in Baton Rouge – when they made the kind of unique arrangement where they, they fired Ed Orgeron, the coach, uh, but he's going to stay on for the rest of the year and maybe even into the bowl game if they get to that. You know, and of course, this came right after a, a, a big win over Florida. So uh, it's like this is kind of unusual that uh, the coach would find himself in that situation. And uh, that can have an impact here uh, locally because uh, the athletic director at LSU, Scott Woodward, who is died in the wool LSU. Uh, but for a while he was the athletic director at A&M and he's the guy who hired Jimbo Fisher, uh, going back to their relationship they had when, when both of them were at LSU 
when uh, Jimbo was on Nick Saban's staff there and they won a national championship. So um, obviously a lot of speculation about whether uh, Scott Woodward would come after Jimbo, who has no buyout in that uh, 10-year Seven and a half or seventy-five million dollar contract, uh, which is a you would think a little unusual, and it makes you wonder sometimes: Did Scott Woodward do that on purpose? I mean, I, I maybe he was thinking, "I'm going to go back to LSU one of these days. I'll make this big hire and bring him here." But then, if I want to hire him someday, uh, it'll be a, a a nice, easy avenue to get him. Uh, I'm not saying that's what happened; it's just something I like to bring up. Uh, so. Let's talk a little bit about coaches because we've got that situation there. First of all, I want to ask you guys, Evan, do you think that the LSU job is a better job than Texas A&M? I do. Um, and why is that? I, I feel like – I still feel like it, it, at A&M, you're going to have to split Texas with Texas and Oklahoma. And I feel like in, LSU might have the best number – LSU is a one-school state. Louisiana is a one-school state. Um, and you've got, per capita, perhaps, maybe the best athletes in the country. Um, there are a lot of complications that go along with the LSU job, but I think it is I, – I just think it is easier to win at LSU than it's going to be to win at A&M. Yeah, I think it's interesting to know. I believe that LSU has as many national championships as Texas does. Uh, and when you consider the fact that uh, they're getting 90% of their players from Louisiana, they get a few from Texas, and I'm sure they get a few from around the other places as well. But, uh, yeah, I've long held that they have – there are more great football players per capita in Louisiana than any other state in the nation. I can't explain why that is. Uh, I just think it's a fact. If you look at what they've been able to do over the years uh, and what the, and the talent they've been able to generate, it's just phenomenal. Uh, the, the problem is going to be always at LSU is you've got about oh, 50 bosses instead of one or two. Uh, and, and there's a lot of politics involved. That goes all the way back to UE Long, you know, uh, guest conducting the uh, LSU marching band. Uh, so uh, that's just a long, proud history there. You know, L- really, Louisiana is another country. Can we just say that right off the top here? <laughs> it is, it's not really another state. It's another country. I think I would agree. Most, yeah, it's yeah, it's one of the most interesting places in the world. I I love I love Louisiana. I love uh, New Orleans. Uh, there's, along with the great football players, there's more great food per capita in in uh, in New Orleans than any other place in the world. So. Uh, yeah, it, it is just, I mean, it is a different football culture and it's a different culture entirely. And that's why, you know, you really thought that uh, if Orgeron could keep it together, he would be, a, he, he was a perfect fit. He's a Louisiana guy. He, he grew up there. He speaks basically the different dialects that go along with the different parts of the state in which you're in. Um, but the question was always going to be, is Ed Orgeron a good enough football coach? And uh, and no, he's not. And the, that's the answer. The answer is no, he's not. So he had Joe. He had Joe Brady as his offensive coordinator. That's when they had Joe Burrow as his quarterback, and and Joe Brady did an unbelievable job with Joe Burrow getting him ready to play, and and they won the national championship. And as soon as Joe Brady left, and everything went off the table. You know, this was if you wanted to, if you want to know the, if you want to know my thoughts. My thoughts are that if you're looking for a guy who may end up being the LSU successor. Look at yeah. Joe Brady or Dave Aranda. Those would be the two guys that I think might be might have some special appeal to, to LSU's fan base. 
Well, it, it, for one thing, uh, it's going to be a lot cheaper if you hire one of those guys. Uh, yes. At least, you know, because you're, you're paying. You know, one of the reasons why Ed Cocho was ready to go was that, well, I'm going to get this 17 million still, aren't I? Uh, so you're, you're paying him 17 million to go away. Uh, you can get you can get Dave Aranda, the Baylor coach, who's who turned them around very quickly. They didn't look very good last year, but they're playing very well right now. Uh, both on offense and defense, uh, and he was a defensive coordinator on those teams. Joe Brady could come back. You could get those guys for probably four or five million. Uh, not the uh, you know uh, I, I think that uh, that Coach O was making about eight and a half million. He's the second highest paid coach in the country behind Nick Saban. Uh, so uh, uh, that would be a factor as well. I want to talk about a couple other coaching situations before we get around to that. Uh, Nick Rolovich, the the head coach of Washington State, and four of his assistants are out because they refuse to get a vaccine, uh, and that's been state-mandated there in Washington. And uh, this has been going on for a little while, kind of a standoff between the two. Washington State's been playing very well, and he's out, and so are those assistants. That's uh, kind of an unprecedented thing that you would – lose half your staff, including the head coach, in the middle of a pretty good season uh, when you hadn't done anything else otherwise to get yourself in that kind of trouble. Um, very, very interesting to me in that situation. What do y'all, what do y'all think about that development, David? Well, I was, I was surprised I was reading. I, I think he is the highest paid state employee in the state of Washington. Yes, he is. At, at $3 million a year. Um, and, you know, we talk about you know, how there there are societal discussion points in sports that you can jump in that also illustrate what's going on, uh, what's happening in Washington, because this is all state employees. This applies to, um, you're seeing it with uh, uh, the police there. Um, you know, you, you're, also having, you're also having these same sort of flashpoints in Chicago uh, with their police force and LA. I mean, uh, you know, certain states that have mandated this um, there is just a, a strong, uh, resistance among some key, uh, employees to, to get the vaccination and that is their right. But I, I believe the courts will also tell you that it is, um, that the state's right and employers' rights to, uh, structure realistic, um, guidelines for, uh, employment. Uh, especially when you're talking about a public health issue. And I know this has turned into something else, but it is still a public health issue. And uh, it just seems we're getting farther and farther away from that. And, and people are, uh, you know, well, it's great that he's making a stand, that Kyrie Irving, is, Kyrie Irving um, you know, with the Brooklyn Nets is making a stand. Um, but what is the stand? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think that's what is, is difficult to articulate a lot of times. Well, especially from a coaching standpoint, you know, it, it, all, all coaches ever talk about is that we do things for the team, right? The team. We're, we're not about, we're not. Team above no self. Team above that's self. Right. Team above self. We're about each other. We're not about ourselves individually. And I, and I, and frankly, just my opinion, uh, but you're preaching the wrong message then by not. And that, that, that is at, at the end of the day. I mean, the concept of vaccine is, for lack of a better term, a team concept, because the whole idea is if everybody gets the vaccine, then we eliminate the disease and we eliminate the, the, the ability for the virus to mutate. And 
maybe you can get by without the vaccine, but you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the team, the team in this case being the general population. And yeah, you can't, you just can't with that mandate and with him being in a leadership position, you just simply can't work around that. And it, 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 that's, that's certainly his choice. He chose not to get the vaccine. And at that point, there there then become consequences. And, and those are the consequences. So I, I, I have no, um, I have no sympathy for Rolovich's situation or his assistant situation. I mean, they were presented with a choice and they made their choice based on what the, what the rules were in the state of Washington. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Uh, you're making a lot of money uh, and you're the highest paid, uh, uh, you know, state employee uh, or public employee in the state. Uh, you know, you're supposed to listen. You're, you're supposed to be standing up for something. All you're doing is introducing a lot of confusion to these young men that you're coaching uh, to me. Uh, and it's an unfortunate situation to, to put them in. And uh, I think that uh, uh, he, he could have done a better job. He made his choice. And the state made its choice for uh, as well. Uh, we also have a, a little coaching situation going on here in, in Austin. Steve Sarkeesian uh, was hired. A lot of people there in Austin, big boosters, um, felt like uh, Chris Del Conte, the athletic director, uh, made the hire there of Sarkeesian off of Nick Saban's staff, where he'd been and, and produced some really high-powered offenses the last few years after – Stints at Washington and USC that weren't so great, uh, but there were people there and uh, among the uh, the big money in Austin who felt like, no, this is just exactly the guy we wanted, which was which was surprising to me that they they wanted that uh, because they'd done exactly the same thing before uh, in, with a guy like Tom Herman, whose claim to fame was that he had been the offensive coordinator at Ohio State and also had done a terrific job in his short term at Houston. Uh, and that didn't work out so well. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that Steve Sarkeesian has has gone around the bend here and, and there's no coming back. But I think that you are, Evan. I am. I, mean, I, I just feel like uh, that the, the Sarkeesian tenure is doomed and this has nothing necessarily to do with uh, whether or not he's a good coach. But I just feel like I've become much more um, of a believer in – traumatic games and the effect that they have in shaking the foundation of a program. And I think that that Oklahoma loss was one of those games. Sarkeesian was involved in one of those games when he was an assistant with the Atlanta Falcons and they had a 28-3 lead on New England. And after they blew that in the Super Bowl, that franchise was shaken to its core and never was able to get back to where it, it thought it was. I think the same thing applied to the Texas Rangers in 2011 when they lost the second consecutive World Series when they had won. You couldn't. You certainly couldn't fire Ron Washington after that. But I think, in retrospect, that loss shook this team to its core, and it was not the same team when it was faced with pressure in 2012. And I just, I don't know how to quantify this. And out here, I've talked to a couple of people about that whole theory, and I'm getting some knowing nods. But I don't know that anybody can completely quantify exactly how it impacts a, a, a program or an organization. But I think it does. I, I understand completely what Evan is saying, but let me just say, once he does complete the final six hours and get his doctor's degree, I will not go to him because I do not want him to call call the patient 
what two weeks terminal <laughs> into his five year tenure. I, yeah, I, it's just a belief, you know. I mean, oh my God, Evan's got a little Evan's got a quick Pager. hook there. He's out. Arkeesian five year deal, six games in, out of here. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we just saw. I, I, we I, just I, saw. Speaking I, of MLB, we just saw the. But you are right. Yeah. We just saw the St. Louis Cardinals fire a manager who won 17 straight and led their team to a wild card game because of philosophical differences in the organization. I mean, you can fire a guy these days for just about anything. Um, well, and- what's going to happen in in, the, in sports now is that managers, coaches make so much money, uh, and and so everybody looks at it like you're making an awful lot of money. I don't want to pay you this anymore, uh, and and the, and so you do see quicker hooks than you used to see. People used to give people a chance and, and to try to work things out. They're not going to uh, stay as long now. Charlie Strong got three years at Texas. Uh, obviously, wasn't going the right direction. I would, I could certainly see uh, Steve Sarkeesian getting, if this continues, uh, this kind of uh, look so far, yeah, three years. Uh, he's hired as an offensive coordinator, though. The, the, their biggest big problem has been their defense. They, they've run out of gas offensively at the end of games, but the biggest problem is they're just giving up too many points. They're just giving up too many yards. Uh, he's going to have to figure out how to play a little defense too. Speaking right, of that, the Astros are giving up too many runs, aren't they? Yeah, they are. How about that? Yeah, the Astros are ser- are serving up a big heaping order of, cl- of slam chowder to the uh, to the Boston Red Sox. Three grand slams in the last two games. Um, I, I maybe this is divine intervention from the gods that this is the punishment the Astros are receiving for the cheating scandal in 2017. <laughs> I, I don't know, but um, their pitching has come up very, very short. And uh, I, I think the, the coda on this whole thing is going to be that, you know, when this series is over, and, and right now a one-game lead for the Red Sox looks a lot bigger than the, the Braves' two-game lead over the over the Dodgers. Um, but once, that, once the series is over and if the Astros lose, I, I really feel like this is going to be the end of the Astros' run. I mean, I, I think their pitching has shown up. That it is, it is slim. They're going to lose Carlos Correa, uh, and, and you know I think that the Seattle Mariners are on the rise in the American League. Um, I think it's real interesting in the National League. I was just really taken by this on Sunday night when the Braves scored two in the eighth to tie the game. Um, both of them on, on on kind of aggressive calls by Ron Washington at third base, and how Wash was being lauded for for those calls that. It's 10 years after Wash was criticized for how he managed the 2011 World Series, and here he might be in a position to finally get that that World Series ring. I, I just think that that's a, it's kind of an endearing story for Ranger fans here as, as, as the playoffs continue. Yeah, everybody has their good times when they leave here. That's, that's, that's the, uh, the MO on that. So. Well, that wraps up another episode of Sports Day Insider. Is it over already? Well, Evan, all good things come to an end, I suppose. The show is produced by Jeff Whittington. And presented by the Dallas Morning News. Our theme song is by Dallas's own John Dufalo. Don't forget to follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your quality podcasts. You'll never miss a Sports Day Insider episode, and you'll discover some other great shows. And if you liked what you heard... Please rate the Dallas Morning News feed and give us a review. It helps us reach other sports fans and news junkies. Learn more about this show and other shows at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find special Dallas Morning News subscription rates just for listeners. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you back here next week.